Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith, and it amazes me that that's what Scripture comments on, and it brings to mind that over the past couple of years, this has been a recurring theme in passages that I've preached on from the New Testament that I keep noticing. I keep running into texts where Jesus comments on the quality and the strength or the weakness of his followers' faith. And in fact, how often it is the weakness is the amazing thing. He would sometimes say to his own disciples, oh, you of little faith. And on the other hand, he didn't utterly scorn people with scrawny amounts of faith. He said that a faith no greater than a mustard seed is enough to move either mountains or mulberry trees. And in Mark 9, you know, he's approached by a desperate man, hopeless and hesitant, who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus answered his prayer. And there are two more instances where Jesus commends individuals for the greatness of their faith. Both of them are Gentiles. One is a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who brings the disciples to the brink of frustration because she's crying for Jesus' attention while he's trying to get some peace and quiet. And in the end, Jesus says to her, O woman, great is your faith. And then the other example of great faith in the New Testament is a Roman centurion, a captain with uh, in the occupying army there in Israel, whose only communication with Jesus was through intermediaries. Jesus doesn't even meet him face to face, but Jesus says about him, I have not even in Israel found such great faith. So I've been dealing with several of those texts over the past couple of years, thinking about great faith, little faith, weak faith, and meanwhile, just in the past few months, some high-profile, fairly high-profile evangelical celebrities announced that they were abandoning the faith, renouncing their faith in Christ because, like Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, they are in love with this present world. And so I've been thinking a lot about faith and how it grows, how it can falter, and how to keep it strong. And recently, something drew my attention to a passage in Luke chapter 7 two chapters ahead of our reading this morning, where John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus to inquire of him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? From John the Baptist. And at first, that's quite a shock. After all, John had prepared the way for Jesus. He baptized him. He gave testimony to him. He publicly announced repeatedly that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John chapter 1, verse 34, John says of Jesus, John the Baptist says about Jesus, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. But here he sends messengers to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It's one of the most abrupt, unexpected scenes in the entire New Testament, and I want to look at it with you this afternoon. Luke 7, our passage starts in verse 18, goes through verse 35. We'll cover the whole passage, but first, here's some context. This chapter starts with two scenes showing the redemptive power of Jesus. Verses 1 through 10 are the account of how Jesus healed that centurion's son from a distance without any actual face-to-face contact with either the centurion or the sick servant. And uh, verse 9 is where Jesus turns to the Jewish crowd and says to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Then immediately following that is Luke's account of how Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. This was a miracle reminiscent of Elijah, who also raised a widow's son. And here's how the people respond in verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And then there's the segue into our passage, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, some background. John himself was in prison at this point. John has been absent from Luke's narrative since chapter 3, Luke 3, verse 20, Luke, almost in passing, mentions that Herod 
locked up John in prison. That's all he says about it. Now, we know from history that the prison where John was incarcerated was located at one of Herod's most remote places. It was a desert fortress called Machaerus. It's a palace that was situated at the top of a cone-like hill, a cone-shaped hill, in an otherwise barren area to the east of the Dead Sea. One commentator describes the place as a sinful pleasure house where Herod would go to indulge his insatiable lusts. And you remember that Herod had taken Herodias as a concubine. She was the wife of his own brother, Philip. And the reason John the Baptist was in prison was that he told Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Incidentally, Herodias was also Herod's niece. So this was a really unsavory case of incest. And it was also in that same vile pleasure palace where shortly after this, Herod would watch his own stepdaughter and grandniece Salome doing a lewd and suggestive dance, and Herod foolishly offered her any reward she would choose, and she demanded the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so John was imprisoned there, and he would soon die there, and this was not the ending you and I might plan if we were writing a script for the life of Messiah's forerunner. Machaerus had some dismal dungeons. They were these small cave-like chambers carved into the rock below the floor level. These dungeons were barren, bleak holes where prisoners were kept, nothing but a chamber of stone. There were no beds, no amenities, and of course no windows, just iron anchors that were embedded into these stone walls so that prisoners could be chained there. That's where John was. John, who had lived his entire life in the wilderness outdoors, is now confined in a dank, windowless dungeon. He's the greatest preacher and prophet of the Old Testament era. But now he's silenced. He had introduced Israel's Messiah, who, according to Luke 4.18, had come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And yet, John himself is now a captive With no prospect of liberation, he had announced to the nation that Jesus was about to bring a baptism of fire. In Matthew 3, verses 10 through 12, John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus, and he says this, Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but... He who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what John's expectation was. That's what the biblical prophecy is. But now the report comes to John the Baptist that Jesus is doing acts of mercy. Look at verse 34. Even the religious leaders of Israel were pointing to Jesus and saying, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that even John is confused. Nevertheless, it does come as a kind of bombshell when you read this passage. John's faith is clearly under assault. The passage breaks naturally into three sessions, defined by three series of questions. First, the disciples come with a question for Jesus in verses 18 through 23. Then Jesus has a question for the crowd, verses 19 through 30. And then finally, Jesus has a question for the religious rulers in verses 31 through 35. We'll take those sections and look at them one at a time. Each section also ends with a saying that serves as a kind of punchline, like the exclamation mark that signals the importance of the point that's being made here. The first uh, first section ends with verse 23. You have Jesus speaking. He says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The second section culminates with verse 28. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then the third section is punctuated with this verse, verse 35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. 
like little proverbs almost. So let's take these a section at a time and follow the threads of Luke's logic as he recounts this episode. First section one, a question for Jesus, verses 18 through 23. And bear in mind, Jesus has just performed this long-distance healing for the Roman centurion, and then he raises a widow's son from the dead. Verse 17 says, News about these remarkable events spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Now verse 18. Here's our passage. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and then he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, a number of explanations have been offered for this passage. No less than Luther, Calvin, and Beza all said that a prophet like John could not possibly have been asking this question for his own sake. They concluded that John just wanted to strengthen the wavering faith of his his disciples, and so he sent them with a question that he already knew the answer to. And there's some partial truth in that. The problem with that view is that the answer Jesus sends back is clearly meant for John's sake. Verse 22, go and tell John. He sends the answer back for John's sake. Another common interpretation is that this passage was a veiled request for Jesus to intervene and end John's imprisonment. Like John's faith isn't the least bit shaken here, but his patience is failing. And by this view, he's he's simply subtly asking Jesus, look, if you're the one who's going to set the captives at liberty and and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, have you noticed this guy, Herod? And again, if that were the point, Jesus' answer to John doesn't make any sense. And then there are those who brashly interpret this passage in a way that impugns the character and the reputation of John the Baptist. They claim John the Baptist was on the verge of losing his faith. You'll hear that from Arminians who think that this passage somehow bolsters their denial of the perseverance of the saints. Or more commonly nowadays, you might hear it from postmodernists who are seeking to justify their own deep-rooted skepticism, their glorification of doubt. And again, that view is refuted by Jesus in the second section of this passage, Jesus gives us his own assessment of John's faith, and he reminds us that John is not a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, John is not a vacillated or vacillating or or double-minded man. So what's going on here? Why is John asking this question? And let me be clear, John was as far removed from faithlessness as anybody in his generation. This is not unbelief. What you see here is faith seeking assurance. John's questions are born of confusion, not cynicism, not unbelief, confusion. John is understandably trying to make sense of many things that seemed like contradictions of his own messianic expectations against the actual outworking of divine providence. We all face that at times, right? Things that happen don't seem to be exactly what the Lord promised would happen, at least as circumstances are going on. So let's be honest. This is a test we all face. The psalmists wrote about it all the time. Why does our help not come sooner? Why do the righteous suffer while the wicked seem to prosper? And if, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God are in him, yea and amen, then why do these promises seem to go unfulfilled at times? And as a matter of fact, in Hebrews 11.39, at the end of that great roster of heroes renowned for their faith, 
you read this. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Why? Verse 40 answers that for us. Since God had provided something better for us. Often, between the promise and the final answer of providence, we exist in a state of bewilderment. And in those times, we all ask the question, How long, O Lord? It's a theme that runs like a thread through the Scriptures. Psalm 13, a psalm of David, begins with this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And it's essentially the same question the martyrs ask in, at the end of Scripture in Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you hear that same question echoed repeatedly in Psalm 77. It's the whole theme of Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? That's Scripture. Those are all, that's a series of questions in one short passage of Scripture, all asking the same thing. And what you hear in that question, from Job in the Old Testament to those martyrs in the book of Revelation, what you hear is puzzlement and disorientation induced by profound personal anguish, suffering. It's the fruit of suffering. This is not bare resentment or unbelief. Now, take care, because it is true that if your faith isn't really anchored in Christ, that kind of confusion can metastasize into resentment and even rank unbelief. That's what happens, I think, in cases of apostasy, like those recent ones I was referring to, people who were Christian celebrities who ultimately abandoned the faith. Their faith was never truly anchored in Christ. And don't think for a moment that someone who renounces the faith ever had genuine faith to begin with. Scripture is very clear on that. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become obvious that they're not of us. Like Judas, you know, he looked good. He seemed totally trustworthy. There was never an obvious blemish on Judas's character because when the Lord forewarned that one of his twelve would betray him, all eleven faithful disciples suspected themselves. They all asked, is it me? Not one of them suspected Judas. Matthew 26, 22, they were very sorrowful and began to say one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, I want to be clear. It's quite true that the faith of John the Baptist is under assault. Well, that's what we're seeing here. No doubt the adversary was seeking to devour him. But we're not to think that John was wavering or buckling under the trial. He was simply trying to make sense of a difficult set of circumstances, a truly baffling situation that he was in. And implied in this passage is a reminder that no matter who you are, no matter how well grounded in the faith, the enemy will attack your faith and try to destroy your assurance As we sing in one of the old hymns, doubts arise and fears dismay, and you will be tempted to question your own faith at times. Don't coddle your doubts. Don't give in to dismay. Remember, this is a normal aspect of the Christian experience. Because James 1 verse 3, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now notice what John did. Rather than brooding over the question that puzzled him, or posing the problem to other people and thereby planting doubts in their minds, he takes his question to the right source, the only one who he knew could give him a definitive answer. And Jesus answers John's question in the most remarkable way. Verse 21, in that very hour, he performed an unprecedented torrent of miracles miracles and healings that and deliverances, satanic deliverances, 
Obvious stuff. And then he tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. This is all good, Jesus is saying, and there's nothing I can't overcome. And by the way, this string of miracles was an echo of several famous Old Testament messianic promises that John would have been thoroughly familiar with. For example, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. One of the things Jesus was doing. And Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We read that this morning. And John surely knew those texts by heart because his entire ministry was all about the fulfillment of messianic promises. And no doubt he knew that those last two verses were immediately preceded by this one, Isaiah 35, verse 4, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Again, that was part of our reading this morning. So it's clear, isn't it, that Jesus' reply to John's question is an encouragement. It's not a rebuke. And Jesus is keen to make that fact clear to everyone within earshot, not only the multitudes who followed him, but also the Pharisees who were hounding him, looking for a reason to condemn and, and, and accuse him. So don't read that punchline, verse 23, as a rebuke to John. It's not. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's not a warning or a reproof. That's a blessing. Explicitly so, because John the Baptist was never aggrieved or resentful or annoyed or repelled or scandalized or made to stumble, which is what this word means, by Jesus. Never did John experience any of those things. And the word Jesus employs here in his aphorism means actually all of those things. The, the Greek word is skandalizo. Skandalizo, you recognize it as the root of our English word scandalized. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. The Pharisees were scandalized by Jesus, as we're about to see. John never was. Jesus is blessing him here. He's not scolding him. He wants that made absolutely clear and so he's going to make it categorically clear in the next section of our passage. This is section number two, a question for the crowd. And the shift in focus here is signaled by the departure of John's disciples. Verse 24, starting with verse 24. I'll read it through verse 30. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare, prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, John, of course, was famous throughout all of Israel for his ministry and in his message as the forerunner of Messiah. John 1.21, the people asked him, What then, are you Elijah? And he, he said, No, I am not. They said, Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So it was well known that John was the Messiah's forerunner. Not only that, but he had also singled out Jesus as the one for whom he was preparing the way. John wasn't the least bit interested in his own 
fame or popularity or the size of the crowds he drew. He wasn't one of those who checked his Twitter feed every day to see how many people were following him. But he said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. So when these disciples of John came and asked Jesus, within within the hearing of all these multitudes, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Those who heard the question may very well have been scandalized. Here was the prophet who baptized Jesus and launched his public ministry asking a question like this, how do you make sense of that? Jesus' words in verses 24 through 28 and also verse verse 33 imply perhaps that people had begun to question the authority and perhaps even the fundamental legitimacy of John the Baptist. Because people, as you know, are pathologically fickle. It's one of the manifestations of our fallenness. Just the fact that John was languishing in prison would have been enough for some people to write him off as a God-forsaken crank and a troublemaker who maybe was just getting what he deserved. And, and because he sent his disciples with a question like this, John's worst critics, especially the Pharisees, would no doubt seize this opportunity to say, see, even John the Baptist really isn't sure about this guy. Because after all, Jesus himself had not publicly declared that he was Messiah. In fact, Matthew 16, 20 says he had strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And that may have added to John's confusion. It certainly emboldened the Pharisees who knew very well that Jesus was the true Christ, but they were determined to oppose him anyway. And Jesus simply let his works, this constant outpouring of miracles, let that stand as the only testimony about who he was. And even his reply to John the Baptist underscores that. Rather than a direct verbal answer to John's question, because he could have said, yes, I'm the one, you know that. Instead of that, he sent John's disciples back with a report of such miracles that there could be no doubt about his messianic credentials. John 7, 31 records the words of people who believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Jesus works were and ought to have been sufficient proof of his true identity. And for those whose eyes were opened, including John the Baptist, of course, that was really all the confirmation they needed. And Jesus knew that John would not require any more of an answer to his question than the reply he sent back with those disciples. Jesus knew that. But all of this was still probably baffling to many in those multitudes who who had not yet come to faith in Christ. If Jesus was the promised one, why would the Pharisees, the most rigorously fastidious religious leaders in the land, why would they openly oppose him the way they did? And why did even John the Baptist now seem uncertain? And so Jesus clears the air with a series of statements designed to sweep away any possible confusion about the steadfastness and trustworthiness of John. He's defending John's character here. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't say these things about John until the text expressly tells us, after John's messengers had gone, verse 24. It's clear, then, that these are not words of flattery. John didn't need, and John certainly wouldn't have appreciated public blandishment. He didn't need to have his ego propped up or have his self-image stoked. He had, a, he had asked a, a frank and forthright question with no hidden agenda, and Jesus knew that the answer he sent back was everything John would ever require. And so although what Jesus says here is practically the highest, highest praise he ever bestowed on any individual... Jesus says these things not for John's benefit, but for the sake of the multitudes. Jesus had already done what he knew he needed to do to dispel John's confusion. Now he needed to refute whatever fallacies might be lurking in the thinking of the multitudes. And so he reminds them of John's bold inflexibility. In the words of Matthew Henry, 
John the Baptist was a man, Henry says, firm as a rock, not fickle as a reed. If he could have bowed like a reed to Herod and complied with the court, he might have been a favorite there, but none of these things moved him. That was John's character. He was a man of great backbone, not a reed shaken in the wind. You remember that scene in Matthew 3, verse 7, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. John could have sought partnership with those powerful Pharisees in a way that would increase his stature and and make him his life a thousand times more comfortable. But instead, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And never in all of the New Testament narrative do you ever see any indication of indecision or vacillation or wavering or cowardice in John the Baptist. And Jesus is simply here making clear that this current incident is not an exception to the steadfast character quality that John was so well known for. Again, this is true faith seeking understanding and assurance. John raised this question because he wanted clarity and assurance. He's trying to understand how what he firmly believes to be true can possibly be reconciled with what's actually happening to him. He's not challenging Jesus' role as Messiah. He's not looking to reverse his earlier affirmations that Jesus is the Christ. He's simply trying to make sense of well-known prophecies and promises that simply aren't yet being fulfilled. Bottom line, like the rest of the Old Testament prophets, John simply didn't have any framework for understanding the two advents of Christ. John had foretold a coming judgment, a prophecy that is absolutely true, and it's a reality that is still looming, but the judgments John foretold were not to be fulfilled at that time. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus says in John 12.47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then in the very next verse, He adds this, The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words as a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. So judgment is coming. Jesus wasn't denying that. And John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. So the prophecies of judgment were and still are true. But because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, He has delayed the outpouring of His wrath, and He calls sinners to repentance. Jesus obviously knew that John the Baptist would not be stymied by the answer he sent back. We're not expressly told how John received the message, but Jesus' words about John's faithfulness clearly signify that Jesus knew John would remain rock solid. He wasn't concerned about that. The multitudes were the ones teetering on the brink of unbelief and apostasy. Most of the Pharisees were already there, not John the Baptist. The question he asks John, uh, the question Jesus asks about John is, is rhetorical. Is to the people, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? John was no reed shaken by the wind, and everybody knew that. And furthermore, Jesus reminds them of John's rugged moral character. There was nothing delicate about John. Ever. Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. I'm embarrassed for having worn a tie and suit. Dressed in splendid clothing. John wasn't. He was literally in the king's dungeon, not the king's court. But even while he was a free man... John had lived in the wilderness in an incredibly hot and hostile environment, an acrid, arid desert, lacking any amenities, utterly devoid of soft things, barren of any delicacies. Mark 1.6 says John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And that was not a weekend survival exercise like Bear Grylls. This is how John lived his entire life. It's the polar opposite of delicate. And his ruggedness was reflected in how he spoke the truth. He didn't sand off the sharp edges. He he didn't water down the strong truths. He didn't try to soften or omit or gloss over the hard parts. He didn't try to put a shade over the light so that it would be easier for people who love darkness to receive it. John would not have been warmly received, I think, by the typical evangelical today. He wasn't particularly diplomatic. He didn't try to be suave and stylish. He was a prophet of the opposite sort. He was a true prophet. Now, don't get me wrong. He wasn't pugnacious or ill-tempered. His ruggedness was not that sort of artificial, swaggering machismo that bullies like to display in order to seem tough. His coarse coarse clothing and, and his lifestyle were simply natural expressions of an honest, down-to-earth character. But he was fearless when it came to speaking the truth. There was nothing uncouth or indecent about him. Just, he was fearless. He was single-minded when it came to fulfilling his calling. He was unaffected by popular opinion or the, the trends and fashions of either Roman or Jewish culture. There was just nothing soft or squishy about him. It was one of the things that made him truly great. Is why Jesus said of him, he's literally the greatest among those born of women, this side of the kingdom. And Jesus commends him not only for his bold inflexibility and his rugged moral character, but also for his high calling. There's a third question to the crowd, verse 26. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Have you thought about that? How was he more than a prophet? Well, he was the forerunner. He was the forerunner, the divinely appointed precursor to Christ. All of the other Old Testament prophets saw the Messiah as a promised deliverer who belonged somewhere in the prophetic future. They spoke of Christ. John pointed to him. John the Baptist literally introduced Christ to the world. He prepared the way for him, he singled him out, he baptized him, and he declared who he was. Unlike any other prophet, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from infancy, and then more than any other prophet, he elevated the nation's messianic expectation. And then he literally ushered Christ into public ministry. So John was the most privileged of all the prophets. He was the most enlightened among them as to the identity of the true Messiah. And perhaps out of all of the prophets, he exhibited the single most, the single-minded devotion, the most single-minded devotion to his calling. Verse 27, Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That is high praise from Jesus. But then he adds, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, let's be honest about this. Because the kingdom as we know it right now is full of people who, compared to John the Baptist don't actually fare very well. And I'm happy to put myself at the head of that list. I am neither as steadfast or as rugged as John the Baptist. All of his distinctive qualities put the rest of us to shame. So in what sense is it true that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist? Well, it should be obvious that those who follow the Lamb are in a better position than the greatest of men who went before him. Or to put it the way the MacArthur Study Bible says it, believers after the cross participate in the full understanding and experience of the atoning work of Christ, which John merely foresaw in shadowy form. And that's true. John the Baptist announced Christ's coming. We proclaim that Christ came. He was crucified, buried, risen, glorified, and ascended, And he now sits at God's right hand, making intercession for us. We declared that this morning in the the catechism. 
And by reason of our union with Christ, we too are risen and seated with him in heavenly places. And in that sense, we have a greater message and higher privileges than John the Baptist. Pretty amazing to think of. And by the way, according to Luke 1.36, Elizabeth, John's mother, was a relative of Jesus' mother, Mary. And so John and Jesus were cousins of some sort. But you and I are brothers and joint heirs with Christ. John was his messenger. We're a kingdom of priests. We have a greater position than John in all of those ways. We don't do enough with our privilege. Maybe, John, maybe Jesus is also looking beyond our position in this life and, and seeing the kingdom in its eternal fulfillment. John, as great as he was, still had all the, all the infirmities and imperfections of fallen humanity. All of us in the eternal kingdom will be greater than that. I look forward to that. And verse 28, by the way, is the punchline to this second section of our passage. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's not only an unqualified affirmation of John the Baptist from the lips of Jesus, but it also points the crowd back to the real point of Jesus' own ministry and message, namely to declare the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has been seeking to declare and demonstrate. And he wants the people in the crowd to ponder where they themselves stand with regard to the kingdom, rather than concerning themselves with questions about John the Baptist and his status. And so, in an amazing economy of words here, Jesus vindicates John the Baptist, and he gets his own message to the multitudes back on topic. It's as if he was saying, you need not to question the faith and faithfulness of John the Baptist. He is rock solid, but you do, Jesus says, need to concern yourselves with your own faith. Examine yourselves. Have you entered the kingdom of God by faith? And then comes a two-verse segue. The ESV puts verses 29 through 30 in parentheses, and no matter what version you're reading, if you have a red-letter Bible, the editors probably have those two verses in black. And understand, the red letters reflect how the, how the translators interpret the passage. There is no indication in the original text whether Jesus spoke what's recorded in those two verses or, (coughs) more likely, that's a comment interjected by Luke as he writes it down. Either way, though, this is inspired and authoritative truth. And most commentators believe, and the context seems to indicate, that Luke is the one who makes this comment the people and the tax collectors acknowledged God's justice having been baptized. In other words, common people, including some of the most notorious sinners among them, common people had responded to the Baptists' call to repentance, and thereby they acknowledged the righteousness of God. On the other hand, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. The religious leaders, in other words, rejected John's message, and therefore spurned their own Messiah. And they weren't baptized because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and they refused to repent. And in some cases, as you see in Matthew 3, that passage where John turns them away, they came for baptism from John, but he refused to baptize them because he knew they were unrepentant. So this is an interesting comment. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. This is not saying that they thwarted the eternal purpose of a sovereign God, that they somehow overturned the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And in Isaiah 46, verse 10, God himself says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So these... Pharisees couldn't possibly frustrate God's purpose with regard to what he himself will do, but they refused his will with regard to what they should do. Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And these Pharisees spurned that command. They refused to repent. 
And that two-verse segue then brings us to section three of this passage. Number three, it's a question for the religious rulers. Now, this extended passage began in verse 18 with a question for Jesus. Then, as we saw, verse 24, Jesus asks a question of the crowd. Now he has a question for these religious rulers. Verses 31 through 35, Jesus asks, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, think through this passage. In that first section, John's apostles were questioning Jesus in front of the multitude. In the second section, Jesus is defending John in front of the Pharisees. Here, he is condemning the Pharisees in front of the people. And he pulls no punches. When he says, the people of this generation, he's looking at and singling out the religious rulers and their followers. And you know that from the description. The Pharisees were constant critics, just like he describes. They were first antagonistic to John the Baptist, and then they were relentlessly hostile and accusatory against Christ. And by the way, that expression, this generation, carries the, the sense of the English expression, you and your ilk. If anyone ever uses the word ilk in, compare, in, in, in reference to you, you know it's not going to be a compliment. And likewise, when Jesus says, this generation, it's never a good thing. The expression, this generation, used 17 times in the New Testament, always by Jesus, and in Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, this generation is an evil generation. Then he uses the expression again, four verses in a row, six times before the end of Luke 11, saying things like, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And then finishing in Luke eleven fifty 50 and 51, he says twice that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation. And that expression applies to people like these Pharisees who were deeply religious, but they wanted a religion that pleased them more than it honored God. Just like today's mainstream evangelicals. They devised both their doctrine and their worship according to what pleased them. And they weren't pleased with the message of Christ or his claims of exclusivity or the standard of holiness that he demanded and his refusal to bend to their preferences infuriated them. In short, they were irritated that he didn't honor them the way they honored themselves. And Jesus portrays them as childish, like kids in the marketplace. One kid says, you know, let's play wedding, and the rest don't want to celebrate. And so another kid says, okay, then let's play funeral, and now they aren't in the mood to mourn. And so they sit and sulk like little children. They're capricious and clueless and contrary, capricious in that they're silly, not serious. They make these ridiculous, utterly groundless accusations against true men of God. Verses 33 and 34, John the Baptist has a demon. Jesus is a drunkard. Capricious. They're clueless in that they are oblivious to the gravity of life, playing games with eternal matters, thinking that they can reject the Messiah without seriously pondering the eternal consequences of their rebellion against God. And that, by the way, is exactly what multitudes of people in our generation are doing. Don't be of that ilk. And they're contrary, as seen in the petulance of their stubborn but contradictory opinions, complaints against both Jesus and John the Baptist. John is too austere for them. Jesus is too genial. Nothing would satisfy them short of a Messiah who would bow to their lordship. It's one thing to question what you believe. It's a whole different matter when you refuse to believe what God says. So here's the punchline, verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. On one level, that's similar to saying, by their fruits you shall know them. You can 
recognize true wisdom by the fruit that it bears. But I think this also harks back to verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, justified God. In other words, God's righteousness is vindicated by those who believe. God's wisdom is likewise substantiated in the salvation of sinners. Now, we know, of course, that Christ is the wisdom of God, incarnate. 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he's vindicated by both his deeds and his children, the people he rescues from sin. This was the very answer Jesus gave to John the Baptist, right? Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Go and tell John what you see and hear. People are being delivered. Look at his works. Look at the people he redeems. This is clearly the true Messiah, and blessed are those who are not offended by him. And they are blessed indeed, even in poverty, imprisonment, persecution, or any of the other hardships that we suffer in this fallen world. And that's true, as in the case of John the Baptist, up to and including martyrdom. Every believer has the assurance of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven forever. And then that's the end of this narrative. And the next time John the Baptist is mentioned in Luke's gospel is just two chapters later than this. And here's how we learn of John, uh, John's death from Luke. Luke 9, verse 9, quotes Herod almost in passing, and Herod says, I beheaded John. That's it. Seems like a humiliating, unheroic end for someone whom Jesus declared to be the greatest of all prophets. But it's in keeping with what we read of those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. This is not a message of earthly riches and comfort, is it? It's not the prosperity gospel but it's something infinitely better. Matthew eleven twenty nine, rest for your souls. There are abundant spiritual blessings in this life for everyone who believes, but better yet, Luke 18, 30, in the age to come, eternal life. That's the best part. That's our guarantee that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Glory that is to be, what is that glory to be revealed in us? It's perfect Christ-likeness. It's freedom from sin and all its wretchedness. The true freedom from spiritual captivity. When according to Romans 8.21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, it's the fullness of redemption. It's not just a release from Herod's prison but the fullness of redemption. And Messiah has already purchased it. It's the birthright of all who believe. And if you have never entered into it by faith, I urge you to come to Christ today because blessed is the one who's not offended by Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the light that shines in our darkness. We look to Christ, the incarnate Word, and to Scripture, the written word, to dispel all of our confusion, to give us victory over every assault against our faith, and keep us anchored by faith in Christ. Keep us walking by faith through the precepts of your word. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We look forward to that time when our faith will be sight, when death is swallowed up in victory, and when all that is mortal is swallowed up by life when Christ appears and we see him as he is. Hasten that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.